Well, welcome to the Valley Hoops Insider Podcast. My guest today is Corey Frazier. So excited to have him with us today. He's been an elite high school player, an outstanding Division I college basketball player. He's been a coach at all kinds of different levels than the national level and here locally and youth, all those kinds of things. Uh, it's, we're going to touch about every facet of basketball you could possibly think about today. And Corey, first of all, just thanks for joining us. I know you're a, a busy guy with a lot of things on your plate. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Oh, man, anytime. Anytime I can sit down and, and talk to the likes of you and talk about basketball and life, this is always a good time for me. So I appreciate that. Well, Corey, Charleston, Missouri, and, and, and I don't know how much of a hotbed of, char of basketball Charleston, Missouri is. I know about Ricky. I know about Lamont, and I know about you. Tell me, but, but there was some good hooping going on back in the day, wasn't there? Oh, man. And, it, and the crazy thing is that it's, it's persisted over the last probably since I've been born anyway. So I'm not going to tell my age, but um, – <laughs> For the last um, few decades, it's been some good basketball come out of Charleston. You know, we've won, I think it's 11 state championships um, during the time that I know I've been around. So um, it says a lot about it. And they're, and they're still doing it. We're in the Final Four uh, last year with Cardinal Ritter. Didn't go so well, but, you know, um, they, they're always in contention to win state championships, and there's always a, a good pool of talent. How did you end up at St. Louis U? And you were a part of two NCAA tournament teams at, at St. Louis U. Um, I played for the St. Louis Eagles. Um, ironically, I, I'm still affiliated with the teams now called Bradbill Elite, but um, playing with St. Louis U, uh, I mean, playing at, with St. Louis Eagles, I was able to be around here, be in St. Louis and be around the city. I got a chance to go around St. Louis campus a couple times, and um, I just fell in love with, with the city, but then more importantly, Coach Bonauer was kind of the icing on the cake for me. Uh, I wanted to stay close to home. I had um, Alabama, Arkansas, um, Man, Tulsa and Toby Smith was there back in the day. So I had a good pool of coaches um, who, who were after me, but I wanted to be close to home. So Spoon Hour, he, he was a difference, man. He was, he was, he's the reason why I came to St. Louis. Give us one Charlie Spoon Hour story. I mean, there's there's 18,000 <laughs> Charlie Spoon Hour <laughs> stories, but. There, there's one. Uh, so during my, what was it, senior year, um, we're in practice and, and we had like three and maybe four guys from Texas on our team. Right. And they were struggling with the defense. Kind of, everybody knew Coach school. Now it was all about the defense, defense, defense. And they were struggling with the defense. So in the midst of practice, they were just messing it up. They wouldn't get it, you know, and it's no knock against Texas, but we play a different brand of basketball here in the Midwest than they do a little bit. It's more physical. It's, it's more tenacious. So anyway, he turns around in mid practice all of a sudden, he's talking to his whole coaching staff like, if any one of you guys schedule another flight to Texas, you're getting fired. And I was like, oh, oh. me, it was like, man, he's really serious about his defense. So that was one of the my senior year where I was like, I think I better play a little bit hard. I don't want any of our assistant coaches getting fired and don't schedule so they can't recruit Missouri anymore. So that was one of my stories, man. That's funny. Uh, you mentioned being at St. Louis U and playing for the Eagles. Uh, the, the St. Louis Eagles, legendary AAU program in the St. Louis area. And, and so many Division I college basketball players came out of that program and other division levels as well. And now that team is the Brad Beal Elite squad or program, as, as I understand it. Uh, tell me the difference now, the, the EIBL League versus AAU and how they compare and contrast. Um, I would say the AAU back then was just about getting exposure 
and going to the national tournament and trying to win a national um, title that way. And that means there was no restrictions on who could play in it. It was no real shoe affiliation, although some teams had a shoe affiliation. But uh, when I played, we didn't. We uh, we had all types of shoes when I played. But um, um, now it's transitioning to more of the brands. So Nike created this thing called the EYBL, which is called the Elite Youth Basketball League. And so they take the top 40 teams around the country. They compete in four different sites in the spring. Um, with hopes to making it to the Peace Jam, which is kind of equivalent to a national title or with the NCAA, the NCAA tournament. Um, your top 16 teams in, uh, in um, obviously, your top, yeah, top top 24 teams at the 17U level will go to Augusta. They'll play in kind of a, you know, in a 16 pool. The top two advance, they go and they play into that, and then you're playing for a national title with Nike um, um, level basketball, but it is probably the best EYBL is probably the best league and best PGM is the best tournament that you're going to find in probably in the world when it comes to high school basketball, because it's the elite of the elite. Most of those guys go on to play at the highest level of college basketball or fortunate enough in the, you know, three to four years to play in the NBA. And you look at the NBA, your lottery picks, your first 16 kids, who's probably 13 or 14 or more are EYBL Nike kids. So, um, the league is really good. Um, it's tough. I mean, it is your closest thing to Division One uh, high major basketball you're ever going to see. And I, I would suggest if you get a chance to, if we're able to play next year, it is worth the trip and the price of admission. It is probably the best basketball you'll see. If you love basketball, you'll make that trip. So I I'll think – of pressure on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I think about uh, the – there's stereotypes, right, that come along with certain things. AAU got kind of a stereotype of, of the coaches trying to promote themselves or make a name or using kids. And gosh, all they do is play games and they don't really work on their fundamentals. Whereas I think the stereotype for the EYBL is way different. It's way more development. It's way more programmatic in that people are a part of a program and they get trained. And there's real maybe longer investment by the coaches and coaching staff in the programs. Is, are those fair assessments? It, it's even deeper than that. If, if in the EYBL, it, it is easy. you got teams. I'll, I'll give you an example of myself. Last summer, I had probably one of the best teams on paper. I had three top 40 kids. That don't mean you're going to win. You know what I'm saying? It, it is. got to make sure the chemistry is right. Their egos are in check in terms of playing together. Um, there's, you got to block the outside influence. So you don't get as much time as you would during the high school season to spend with the kids, where at high school we get three or four months to really work on developing offenses and, and our chemistry and all that. EYBL, you get probably two practices a week, and then you're going to play games. Now, in that process, the coaches who study the most, study their opponents. We use synergy. We used to use crossover hoops, huddle, and all that stuff. You need to know your opponent. So there's a lot that goes into just showing up to play games. You just show up to play games, you're going to get your butt kicked. Okay? You're going to get your butt kicked. It may not be the best teams that do it. I mean, best players, but it's the best team. So there is a lot that goes into um, planning the EYBL. So you just can't just show up to play. Strategically, you got to plan. you got to pick the players who's going to best fit the system. Um, you also got to get the, the players who's going to buy into your system as well. So, I mean – we get a lot of not, a lot of knock against us that it's not good basketball until you actually go see these coaches are really pouring into these kids. And it's not just um, 
the play. It's not just the coaching piece. We're nurturing. We're, we're, we're talking about guys in life. You know, we're helping them with life-made decisions and stuff like that. And these kids have so many things that's going on outside of basketball that we have to address um, through, you know, from, from March until the end of July. So, you know, where we, they think we don't do anything, it's a lot. And I can see it on both sides of the fence. Some programs are not good. But then you got some that, like us, we've been around for 35 years. So we're 30, it'll be our 35th year next year. So we, we're doing something right in terms of helping young men um, and now young women to, to be successful. State championships at, Ma at Maplewood, and, and you're mm -hmm. at John Burroughs right now. So you've done it at the high school level. You've been a coach with the national team. Uh, mm -hmm. You work with uh, Drew Hanlon and the Pure Sweat mm -hmm. folks. And, I mean, you've just done everything. What, when do you find time to piece it all together? How do you keep track of it all? The pandemic, I hate it, but it's been the best thing for me. <laughs> now I, I get to put everything in perspective. And... and the time that I miss with my family, the time that I miss, well, I got a, a nine month old daughter. I'm surprised you heard her screaming here yet, but um, you, you, you have to really take a step back and look at everything you've missed. You know, my, my kids, I have three older kids that I miss time with. Um, so I miss, you know, I don't miss graduations. I find time to make sure I get there, but that other little valuable time when they call on dad and you're on the road, recruiting kids to play in the AAU or you're in a high school season, you can't just break away um, because of, of your commitment. But, you know, it, it, I really don't. I mean, it goes by so fast. You leave one season, you go right to the next season. Then I'm training. I got NBA players that I'm trying to get ready for the draft. And it, it is it is all of But USA basketball, I'm doing that stuff too as well. So it's, it's, it's everywhere. So I, but I love the game. Though. I love doing it. It's very clear that you do. I, when I contacted you about doing this interview, I told you I wanted to talk hoops, but I also wanted to talk about just what's going on in our country, the social injustice problems, the social justice we want to see, those kinds of things. Uh, I'm a, you know, I, I always tell people I, I'm not very athletic, but I love athletics. You know, I, I, I played high school basketball. I wasn't any good, you know, but, but I was on a team and started for a team and we had good records, but mm -hmm. I, I'm not, a, I was not a star for, for sure. But so I've got an athletic mindset and I think about how valuable being mm -hmm. on a team, having a coach, that cares, that speaks into your life, how valuable that is in so many different regards. And so you're doing it at the elite pro <laughs> level and the national level and the high school level and the EYBL. -E um, talk about that part of your job or your role, your calling, your mentorship. Um, it, and it is, it is a constant conversation. Every moment is a teachable moment, I, I, even on the court, off the court. And I relate a lot of things to life lessons. And, and, and I take injustice and the unrest that you have to constantly remind young men of, of color or not of color of the times that we're living in and, and the reality of what we're living in. So it is a, a constant conversation to our young men and our young women about the decisions and choices they're making. You gotta make sure Social media can help you, but can also hurt. It can hurt. It can hurt you very well. Um, but you know, for me, coming from a small town and, and not really experiencing it like others, my experience being in a small town, every town in Southeast Missouri, you you have Charleston, who's probably split down the middle, 50-50, You know, people of color and people. You know, what I'm saying not of color. Then you go to another town, it might just be all people of color. So. 
I've, I've seen it all, but I've had my own personal experiences. Um, we, we had a conversation with our with our coaching staff within our programs that we've done um, talking about these issues or what have you. And I shared my own personal experiences my first time having a, a, a racial um, thing happen to me. And I was a, a sophomore in high school. I didn't know how to react. My first initial thing was to ball my fist up and, and want to fight. But... I had to stop and thinking about, you know, my, my parents have always told me, you know, be aware, be aware of your surroundings and who you're with at all times. And, and I didn't want to hurt the people who brought me to the basketball tournament or anything. So walk away feeling hurt, angry, want to fight, you don't know, whatever. And, and, you know, they would talk to me. I was like, you know what? I'm still waiting on that apology. I've never got that, but I've grown from that. I'm able to educate my kids and kids that are coming to, even the guys that are they're, they're looking to be, uh, professional basketball players to talk to them about, man, some things you, you're never going to get apologies for. So you got to move forward, make you stronger, and understand that everybody don't think like you. Everybody's not going to do exactly what you do. So you got to surround yourself with people who have the same goal in mind and, and trust that, you know, they're going to help you at all costs get to where you want to go. I was at a Missouri State practice this a couple of years back when Paul Lusk was there, and he related a story to his team about a time when he got profiled in, in downtown Kansas City. He was, he was recruiting in, in, in the urban parts of Kansas City, and he got pulled over by the cops knowing he was a drug dealer looking for someone to sell drugs to. Wow. And and he said I was getting madder, more and more mad, and he, mm -hmm. and he, and he, and he said it dawned on me that I was getting profiled, but it dawned on me what my guys go through on a routine basis. And he was using that, like you're just saying, a, a teachable mm -hmm. moment. It, it is so an imperative, I think, for us to run away from binary choices and to come right. to this place of saying, man, there's stuff out there. I might disagree with this viewpoint or that point uh, viewpoint, but there's stuff going on that we have to fight back against that is causing so many people in our community to feel put upon, downtrodden, or less than. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and if, if I, I, I think everybody's aware of it, they just don't speak on it. And, and I've been one of those who've been reluctant to not sometimes because I worry about, you know, the whole basketball, where I'm trying to go with basketball, who I'm trying to help. But then at the same time, it's like, well, you, you're hurting the situation because people want to hear from you. And then I always question, well, do I know enough? Well, you've got experiences. I, I, I've experienced it in a small town. I've experienced it here in St. Louis, in U-City. Um, you know, me and a friend of mine, you mentioned Kansas, Jamal Walker, one of my teammates, we were going to a paper in, in U-City, at U-City Library, and we get pulled over, and it's like, what are y'all doing over here? And we get pulled out, drug out the car, sitting out, hot hands on the hot hood, and we're like, we're just college kids. We didn't know no better. But, um, you know, just to experience something like that, um, was, was just like, man, I couldn't wait till I got home to call my mom. You know, we didn't have cell phones, so we couldn't call it in. So we're trucking it down um, Dale Mart trying to get back to campus. We called Spoonar right away. It was like, look, this is happening in the city. And they took care of it, but you still, you know, I, every time I go down the street in the city now, it's like going down the loop. I'm like, you know what, I, don't, I feel that. I feel that anxiety of I remember getting pulled over right here, just going to the UCLA library, just trying to go over there and get some help for a class, you know. So, um, you know, it, it, it's amazing, but, you know, you, you can you can turn a blind eye to it or you can deal with it head on. And we dealt with it head on. And, you know, we, we talk about that story to this day. And But, you know, it's our kids. I fear for our kids. I really do because I don't think they know the, the seriousness of it because kids act differently. They might react to it versus – 
thinking and, and, and really taking a step back. It's so like, you know what, let me comply. But then you worry about complying because this may happen. So there's so many things that, that, you know, you can only tell them about and hope that and pray that things go the right way. It's sad, isn't it? I mean, that we're still in this place. I mean, we've seen great strides at one level, you know, and a lot of laws that have changed and so forth. And yet here we still are you know, with this, these exact same internal, external, emotional struggles. It's, it's sad that we're still there and who can change the human heart other than God, right? So we do need laws, you know, we do need parameters that help us in society. And so there's a lot going on about get out the vote and, you know, be, be aware and, and, and be plugged in. So many uh, things have gone on in our nation. Talk about uh, your viewpoint of protest versus riots i think i think it's important for people to just think through those things what is that well how, how does that uh talk about that just a bit um I, and i'm i'm big on organized protests I, I i think when when you don't organize to protest that becomes a riot mm. because there's no direction of what you're doing that's that you know being reactive or proactive so if i'm proactive i'm, I'm gonna plan for it i'm gonna get with some people who I trust that I know their intentions are good and go out and do the right things to try to bring awareness. But when, when you're, when you're, when you are, you know, when you're protesting and you planned it and it's organized, I don't think you end up with rights. So that's kind of just my take on it. But when you, when you're coming out there and, and there's no plan, that's when you get to tearing up your own community. Um, you, you go downtown and you, you, you tear this up, but now you got to face a whole different thing because this is you out of your area. How did you get here? You know, and, and you driving from your area to this area just to tear up something that that's not, it's not going to end well. So that's what causes all your rise to happen. You know? It's not going to end well. And, and, and I think those kinds of things end up wounding the, uh, what's the word I want to use? Harming the message. we got a very yeah. important message, but the message gets deterred by those other things. Absolutely. And, and, and that, that happens way too often because there's going to be somebody that, wasn't invited that's going to come in and they like, you know, we're just going to jump on here and let's let us go down here and do that. So I think it's, you know, when it's organized and it's done right and you have the right people who are, are you know, helping put this thing together to kind of secure off people like, well, I don't know you. I don't know if you should be a part of this, you know, um, and, that, and that's what that's what I'm for. So I've been real kind of careful about, um, you know, if I'm going to go protest, if I'm going to do something like that, I want to know who is going to be there. What is our message and what, what are we trying to get? That's what I, I, was, I was at a on the swab in at several, but on the uh, under the South Florissant Street prayer meeting, we were praying along the side of the street there in Ferguson. Uh, you know, I've done that several times, but uh, it was from this time to that time. And there here was the goal. And this is what we were going to do. Mm -hmm. And then I had African-American friends of mine in that community say, now it's time for you to go home. And, uh, <laughs> Right, right. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And they said, oh, right. it's going to get worse now. So, right. you know, yeah. knowing your community, knowing the, the surroundings, all of that valuable and all of that important, I think, for us uh, to not only just do it effectively, but also to cultivate those relationships across geographic and racial lines. I think what has happened in, in a lot of these things is we cease to see people as humans. They're just mm -hmm. the other whether right. it's a white person looking at a black person or vice versa, they're just that guy with a mask and a helmet or a mask and a hoodie. And, and, and they're not human. We've dehumanized the whole process. Absolutely. And, and it, 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 
it happens, it's like walking around with your eyes wide shut. You know, we see it. We we know who's who, but then then some of us are judged by our skin color or our skin tone, whatever you want to call it. Um, and and then you hear our words come out, and you got to take a step back, like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. You yeah. Know? So um, I was talking to um, uh, who was the Charlotte Hornets the other day, and and it was it was not about this specific thing, but they watch a young man play on the basketball court. And then he gets down and sit down and does his, his uh, interview with the NBA team. He's got on suit and tie. And you're thinking about this rough kid that you've seen on the court. And then he speaks. He's so intelligent. He, he articulates his words very well. And, and it becomes like, wow. I'm, and it, and it, it became – and I knew it was impressive when I got the call. I'm like, that's him. Like, we're, we know that, but the world doesn't see that. You know, you just see what you see and that's it. So, um, you know, it's, I'll just, I think I'm blessed to be able to – be in a position I am to help. And that's all I'm here to do is help. I, don't, I have no claim to fame. I don't get paid any more, any less to do what I do. Um, whatever God has for me, I, I'm going to be rewarded in the end. So it, it is so easy to be misunderstood, isn't it? And, you know, mm -hmm. in, in our city, I'm sure you know Tony Irons very well. In, mm -hmm. in our city, his dad was kind of a lightning rod for a lot of things. And, right. and what I know about being around Floyd was that his players swore by him and 20, 30 years later, they all called him coach. He had helped them find jobs, better their lives, stay in the community. And uh, like I said, he was a lightning rod for a lot of people. But, but every time I've had an opportunity, I've just defended Floyd because I watched the guys that he, that he invested in. And, and the value is in that where people are only going to look at the negative. He's helped so many. And, and – that's why I value my old high school coach. Still to this day, I still got a relationship with Lennon's McFerrin. I coach Lennon's McFerrin because I want to make sure his title is, is done right. And we still call him Coach Mag. Um, but it is the value that he brought to a small town. And it changed lives. Kids got an opportunity to leave the town. They could, they could call on him for whatever they needed. They got in trouble. You know, Coach Mack was going to be there for them. And that's kind of lost today with a lot of high school kids. And it becomes – well, you come play for me, you do what you do, and then let's move on. Versus, no, this is a lifelong way. And that's something that I instilled in all of my kids. I want this 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 chance that we have for me to coach you and you to play for me to last forever. So when you come back, I want you to give back to the same give back the same way that I gave to you. That's all I ask. When when you think about the young men in your program or they're at Burroughs or whatever, mm -hmm. um, what are the kinds of things related to this uh, current time of uh, it's so tense? You were talking about how young men should respond, maybe if they get pulled over, like your situation in U City, or how they should address police officers, or or other things. I mean, are there are there some constant themes that you're repeating to your guys? Um, I, it, I think it's different according to who, because if I was at Maplewood, it'd be a different conversation. At John Burroughs, it's a different conversation because, and, and, and they know this, and I talk to my John Burroughs kids about this all the time. People think that you are highly privileged kids, period. Sure. That, it is not going to go anywhere. I don't care what you say. You're at John Burroughs, and this is what people are going to think. Well, you are privileged to a sense. You're privileged because you, you're able to go and do this every day, every night. You, you, you have a, a home to go to. You have mom and dad at home, whatever it may be. But the reality of it is, is if, if you're ever in this situation, regardless, 
you need to know how to respond and how to act in a situation. So it, it, it's, a, it's the same message, but it, it's, it's maybe different details depending on who that kid is and where they are at that time. So the message is, it's the same, but it's just a little different on how you want to get that message across. It was the exact same. 